far we've looked at the ones that are in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with one caveat, and that is Mark, as scholars think it originally ended, and today we'll be looking beyond that. Each of these, as you've noticed the last uh, five weeks, begin with and focus on uh, that empty tomb version, empty tomb narrative, which deals with the women at the tomb. And with the exception of the original ending of Mark, each of these contain two or more stories of Jesus appearing and having been seen by the women, by the men, or others. Matthew has two stories. Uh, unlike Mark, which ends with an angel, the women seeing the angel but not seeing Jesus, in Matthew, the women see Jesus and get commissioned by him. And then Matthew moves up to Galilee and the disciples see the risen Lord up there. Luke also has two accounts, and his is different. Uh, again, they're all individually different. We have the famous story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus who seem to be a little bit challenged in their ability to recognize who Jesus is, uh, so they walk with him for a while. And then Luke also has an account of Jesus appearing to the leaven, but this time it's not in uh, Galilee, but it's in Jerusalem. Luke places all of the appearance stories within Jerusalem. Then we uh, have also in Luke a reference to resurrection uh, to Peter. Uh, it's interesting because it's sort of said in passing. We don't actually have a story about that, but just uh, the two disciples who come from the road to Emmaus are told, yeah, he appeared to Peter. And you'd like, well, we would like a little backstory to that, but we don't get it. John has four appearances. Uh, we have three accounts in Jerusalem, and then we have one up in Galilee, like Matthew did. In Jerusalem, we have, first of all, to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, this is not the Mary Magdalene of our culture. This is Mary Magdalene of the scripture, and very, very different. She is, do you remember what two titles she gets in the early church? She what? Yeah, that's the bad rap she gets, you know, starting about the, the sixth century, you know. <laughs> A pope puts a few too many scriptures together and says, I think that she who was, 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 and he was wrong, but that's okay. But if a pope says it, it has some traction. Yeah, she is the, she's the apostle to the apostles, and she's the primary witness in the Gospel of John. She's the first to see the risen Lord. She's the one to take the message to the apostles. And in the Eastern Church in particular, she's still known as that. Uh, we have an appearance to the disciples in Jerusalem, but sans one disciple who for some unknown reason simply was not there. And a week later, John tells us the disciples are together again. And Thomas is a famous doubting Thomas story, which again is a bit of a misnomer. In Galilee, we have the seven, uh, seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Again, John is not so bit much big on the 12. He has... Some of the disciples have the same name, some have other names. He mentions seven that are there. And then we have this interesting conversation with Peter by the sea. Do you remember what Jesus asked Peter? Peter, do you love me? Three times. Which seems to kind of balance his three denials of having known Jesus. Uh, it seems to work that way in John. In total, we have ten distinct resurrection stories in the Gospels. Uh, but that's not the entire picture. That's the stories but we actually have some other references to the resurrection that are not fleshed out as stories, but they're still references. We have four additional sources. One of these is found in Paul's letters. Um, and what's interesting about this is that Paul is writing a clear generation before the first gospel. So that makes Paul's testimony the earliest, the closest at the time, 
And so he's our earliest witness to the resurrection. Uh, Paul tells us that he actually is writing this letter at a time when some of those who've seen the risen Lord are still alive. Go ask them, okay? He's basically saying they're there. You can go talk to them and, and figure this out. The other three stories come a generation after the Gospels. They are in probably around the year 120, somewhere in there, the early 2nd century. Uh, and all three of these are alternate endings to the Gospel of Mark. It appears the original Gospel of Mark had an issue. It had a problem. And people do not like leaving problems unsolved. So we have several attempts. We're kind of blessed with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, your Bible have that. So here's, here's the sources. Paul, roughly 50, 53, early 50s, somewhere in there. We've got Mark a generation later. We've got Matthew. We've got Luke. We've got John. And then we're going to have the other endings of Mark. So we're, we've looked at are the ones in the middle. So today we want to look at the one at the beginning, Paul. And we want to look at the endings of Mark. We begin with the earliest known account of the resurrection. This is going to be 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. For I handed on to you as of first importance, he tells the church, what I in turn had received. In other words, Paul is reminding us this is not something he concocted or thought up. He had received it himself as part of the tradition. He then handed it on to this church that he founded. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. And now... Paul goes on to tell us a little bit about who he understood that, that Jesus appeared to. Cephas, who would be? Peter, okay? You have the, the Aramaic name and you have the Greek name. Uh, to the 12, either Paul does not know about Judas or the 12 has already been fleshed out again or it's simply just a different tradition or he could simply be referring to the 11, but to the core group of disciples. By the way, what's one of the very few times Paul refers to the 12? He's not a big fan of the 12. He has a little controversy with it. Uh, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. Have we seen that one before? We have not. Still, most of them are still alive, though some have died. That happened about the year 30, and Paul is writing in the early 50s. It's been nearly a quarter of a century. Some of the people would have passed. Some would have still been there. Then he appeared to James. Is that one we've seen before? It is not. Then to all the apostles. Well, Paul makes a distinction between the 12 and the apostles. So this is probably a larger group. And again, Luke also refers to a larger group. Last of all, to one untimely born, who did Jesus appear to? To Paul. Um, and again, that may be a couple years later. Now, Paul wants us to understand that what he received. Now, when did he get this? Well, this is pure speculation. We don't know. It could have been at his conversion. You would think with that, uh, we're told in Acts that he went to Damascus and he stayed with some people uh, for a while until he got his sight back and he could have been instructed in that. Could have been 30, 31. Some people think as late as 33, but, but very, very quickly. Or could have occurred according to uh, Galatians, Paul tells us, after he was converted, he went into the desert in Arabia and then he came back and he went to Jerusalem. And while he was there, he spent time with Peter, 15 days, a little over two weeks. And he spent time with James. Now, if you're going to go, been converted to the faith, and you're going to go spend time with, with Peter, what do you think you're going to talk about? <coughs> Maybe a little bit about this faith that you've been converted to. And perhaps you might want to talk to somebody who actually knew Jesus to learn more about him. Again, a conjecture, but it's a pretty good one. Uh, again, he tells us that in Galatians. 
Paul is going to list six appearances. These are the six that we've just seen. Uh, what's interesting about this is that all but two of them are otherwise unknown to us, which means we've got four that we've not seen in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which makes them of interest. We don't have a lot of information. Uh, we know about Peter. We know about the 12. Maybe we know about to all the disciples in case that might be uh, a cross-reference to one of the other ones. It's interesting, Paul does not mention the empty tomb. Where does every gospel account start? The empty tomb. Paul does not mention it. We do not know why. Does he not know about it? Is it a separate tradition? Is he just summarizing and he skips over it? We simply do not know that. Uh, there is speculation that maybe he did not know that tradition, that that may have been a separate tradition. Uh, it'd be hard to figure that out, but we don't know. He does not appear to know about the appearances to Mary Magdalene, to the women at the tomb, or the appearance to any woman. Now, you, some people want to give Paul a bad deal about his anti-feminine and all that, but if you actually read Paul's letters, he's quite the contrary. He calls Julia, the, uh, or Junia the, the foremost of the apostles. He has, he, we know that his house churches he starts meet in the homes of, of women, and that women provide leadership in the early house churches. So Paul is not the anti-feminine person he's sometimes portrayed to be. Um, it's hard to understand why Paul would edit that out if he knew about it, unless he's just trying to summarize so quickly. But again, he simply does not mention any of that. It's also striking because all the other accounts are built in the empty tomb, and it's built on the appearance of the women. That's just an anomaly. That's just one of those questions. You, we don't know the answer to that. Now, Paul's list is interesting and worth kind of looking at. First to Cephas. Uh, this seems to imply not Cephas with a group. First to Cephas seems to imply that somehow Peter got an individual appearance of the risen Lord. Uh, Luke tells us that, and Paul tells us that, and neither one gives us the story, which is just something wrong with that. I don't know. Uh, but Paul knows that he appeared first to Peter, and this is a long time before Luke is writing. Now, Peter can only be first if you don't know about the empty tomb tradition. Because if you know about the empty tomb tradition, who was first? Mary Magdalene and John, or in the other Gospels, the women. The women are the first to see the risen Lord. So, again, this may be an indication that Paul may not actually know that tradition. Uh, it's hard for us to think that, but maybe in the first century, not everybody knew everything. Maybe they had learned bits and pieces of it, and not the whole thing. Uh, this does not appear to be the account where he, he meets with Peter up in Galilee in the Gospel of John, uh, because in that narrative, Peter is clearly with the disciples, and it's not the first appearance, so it doesn't seem to be that. Uh, what's really interesting is, when you consider how important Peter is, isn't it interesting that we don't have a single account of what the appearance to Peter was like. We've got multiple accounts to other people, but Peter, foremost of the disciples, we simply don't have that. We've got references that he did have an appearance, but we simply do not have any account of that. Um, Paul may have learned about this appearance from Peter himself because he stayed with Peter for two weeks, uh, would have had a time and opportunity to talk with Peter on a variety of subjects. Uh, we're told that he appeared to the 12. Pa Paul probably means the eleven. It is possible that Paul does not know about Judas. I mean, that is possible. Uh, we know that as time moves on, Judas becomes a more important figure and becomes increasingly negative. Uh, 
Paul refers to the fact that Jesus was handed over, but Paul always refers to Jesus being handed over either by God or by Jesus. So does Paul maybe not know about uh, the Judas story? That we're not sure. Uh, it could be in Jerusalem, like Luke and John tell us, or it could be in Galilee. That's if, if Paul has a, a reference. That's entirely possible that Paul is referring to something here that the Gospels don't refer to, maybe another appearance. More than 500. Uh, we do not have any other reference to this event unless it's the Pentecost story. Now, what would be the problem with it being the Pentecost story? I'm going to cross-reference Acts 2 real quick. Do you remember the Pentecost story? Who was there? Disciples were there. Thousands of people were there. Holy Spirit was there. Was the risen Lord there? No. There's no indication whatsoever in the Pentecost story that the risen Jesus was there. It focuses on the Holy Spirit. Uh, no indication in Acts that this was a resurrection narrative, a resurrection appearance. It's a different type of narrative. Uh, best guess is that Paul may be referring to an otherwise undocumented appearance. Now, what's interesting is Paul is very confident about this because he says, by the way, there are eyewitnesses to this event still walking around. Go talk to him. That's about as confident as you can get, isn't it? That, you know, the people out there know this story. Uh, they can confirm that event. Um, likely that this would have happened in Jerusalem because that appears to be where the bulk of his inner core of disciples were at that time. But again, conjecture. James, uh, this is one of the more interesting ones. We know a lot about Now, there's a half a dozen Jameses in the New Testament, right? Guess which one this is? The brother Jesus, yeah. The biological brother Jesus, or if you're Catholic, his cousin. A uh, <laughs> little different tradition there, okay. Uh, again, we have no other account of this in the New Testament, uh, but it does account for a particular, peculiar fact. Peculiar fact is, how did the brother Jesus become a Christian and become leader of the Jerusalem church, which he was for a quarter of a century, when in fact all the evidence indicates he never believed in Jesus as long as Jesus was alive? So let's kind of walk through that because it's an interesting story. Paul is referring to the James who's the brother of the Lord. He's also known as James the Just uh, by that meaning that he is Torah observant. He's conservative. He becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church after Peter leaves and the Jerusalem church becomes very tied to traditional Judaism. If you're going to be a Jesus believer, you've got to be a Jewish Jesus believer. And as Paul and Barnabas move out, we begin to get tension between those two groups. Uh, the book of Acts narrates that. Two Gospels tell us that neither James nor his brothers believed in Jesus while he was alive. Those of you who have siblings comes as no shock, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. John, not even his brothers believed in him. Okay, it's family. Uh, then his family heard it. They went out to restrain him because they were saying he has gone out of his mind. Okay. Uh, so no indication in the Gospels that James was in fact a believer up to the crucifixion. So then you have to account at what point did he become a believer? Uh, somehow or another that happened. He becomes the leader of Jerusalem Church. He holds that from the year 40 to about the year 62 when he's stoned. Now, how did it happen? Tradition tells us that it's because he saw the risen Lord. And Paul seems to know about that tradition very, very early on. Uh, Paul's not alone in saying this, but it became traditional. Um, again, Paul could have heard about this at the same time he heard about the appearance to Peter. 
three years after his conversion because he says an interesting thing in Galatians. It's worth reading. After three years, this is three years after the Damascus uh, event, he goes into the desert for a while and he comes back. Uh, then I did go up to Jerusalem. He's defending that he did not go to Jerusalem prior to this to visit Cephas and stay with him for 15 days. This is where he would learn the Jesus tradition. He would learn about Peter. I did not see any other apostle, he says, because he's defending himself because he's been charged of being second to the apostles, except James. Which James? The Lord's brother. So Paul let us, lets us know that he, in fact, spent time with, G with Peter. He spent time with James. So during this time, he could have learned. We don't know. It's speculation. But I would think if you're going to spend time with these guys, you would learn something about them, what happened. Now, though it's not in the New Testament, there is an account that narrates the appearance of Jesus to James. It's uh, found now in the writings of Jerome. It's, referred, it's in a book called the Gospel of the Hebrews, which is the gospel that does not survive except it's quoted by some of the early church fathers. And Jerome saves a little section. I thought you might be interested in this. The Lord went to James and appeared to him. And James had sworn that he would not eat bread from the hour at which he had drunk the cup of the Lord, which would be Monday, Thursday, the day before Jesus is crucified, until he should see him risen from among them at sleep. So James is not going to eat until he sees the risen Lord. Shortly thereafter, the Lord appeared to James and said, bring a table and bread. He took the bread, blessed it and broke it, gave it to James the just and said to him, my brother, eat this bread for the son of man is risen and among them that sleep. Again, not in the New Testament, but it's one of those early church traditions that accounts and fills in the gaps there. To all the apostles, again, probably the 11, unless Paul does not know about Judas. Perhaps it could be a larger group. Luke tells us the 12 and the other disciples, so it could be a larger group. Uh, Paul would call a, an apostle anybody that proclaims. It's not limited to the 12. He's an apostle. A Juni is an apostle. Others are apostles. Lastly, to himself, pretty broad consensus that, that Paul understands his experience to be a visionary experience. Uh, and but he's real clear that, and again, it's a year or two after Jesus died probably, but it's real clear that he believes that what he saw is no different from what the others saw. They had seen the risen Lord. He has seen the risen Lord. He understands it as a visionary experience. He may understand the others. He also clearly understands that his is last, and again, it leaves that list leaves a lot of questions unanswered. But one of the tantalizing hints we get is it does appear not all the resurrection appearances made it into the Gospels. Because Paul's got four more that didn't make it in. How many other were, were there that didn't make it in? We don't know. Uh, there could be numerous others. Not everything made it. If you put together all of these with Paul's, we get 15 or 16. The 15 or 16 depends on whether you count Paul's vision as an actual resurrection appearance or it's just a visionary experience. So it depends on that. The other place that we can look, and this is in the, the ancient manuscripts of the early church, is in the different, in the manuscripts, the different endings to the Gospel of Mark. Um, now we have almost, you know, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, but we want to hit it again real quick. Pretty broad consensus that the Gospel of Mark did not end the way it ends in your Bible today. 
Originally, it ended early. It ended there at verse 8. A uh, uh, couple of good reasons for that. But he ends with the women fleeing in terror, not telling anyone the angel's message because they were afraid. Remember that? That's just not a very s- comfortable place to leave a gospel, is it? You, know, you can understand why some people had some issues with this. So uh, why is it believed that this is the original ending? And what's the evidence? Well, there's a couple pieces of evidence. One is internal. Because clearly the gospel Mark says at verse 8 that they didn't do anything. Verse 9, then they told everybody. Doesn't make sense, does it? They didn't tell anybody, but then they did. So in terms of the, the, the literature itself, it doesn't seem to make <laughs> sense. The most compelling evidence, though, is the manuscripts themselves, the surviving manuscripts that we have of Mark from the early church. And this is where it really gets interesting. The verses 9 through 20 that are in your Bible that probably have a little footnote that you may not have ever read, but do read it, uh, which are found in the Bibles today, are missing from all of the most ancient and important manuscripts. Not a one before the 6th century has the longer ending. Okay? The oldest copy we have is P45. This is uh, also known as the Chester Beatty Papyrus 1. Uh, it dates from about the year 150, which makes it older by 150 years, maybe 200 years, than anything else we have. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had an ending to this? Unfortunately, the manuscript is fragmentary. What's interesting about this uh, manuscript is this is the first time we have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, together, collected with the book of Acts, okay, which is wonderful. The problem is, is that it's damaged. We are missing the last several chapters of Mark. Darn it, okay? (laughs) That would have been handy. The oldest complete manuscripts of Mark that survived today are Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Uh, these are 4th century wonderful manuscripts that were commissioned uh, by the imperial uh, household. Uh, these both date from the 4th century, the 300s. Neither contains the longer ending of Mark. Both end at verse 8. Isn't that interesting? 4th century, it ends at verse 8. Second century's fathers, Clement of Alexandrian origin, do not know. They make references to Mark and how Mark ends. They apparently do not know anything about verses 9 through 20. They think Mark ends at verse 8. By the way, those numbers were added later, but they think it ends there. Uh, Fourth century, Eusebius and Jerome tell us that the longer passage was absent from almost all the manuscripts of Mark known to them. They also tell us that the manuscripts that did have the longer ending had scribal notes saying that the older manuscripts lacked it. So pretty compelling evidence. In fact, you have a, you're looking at a copy here of the earliest manuscript that has Mark 16, 9 through 20 in it. And this is from the 5th century. Uh, your Bible has these verses, probably has a nice footnote that says they weren't there originally. Now here's an interesting question. If it's very clear that Mark originally ended at a particular point, why would you add something? They don't like the ending. That'll, that'll work right there. You know. <laughs> Which tells you something about the early church. They felt a little freer to do that than we do today. You, know, you try putting an ending onto something today and see how far that gets you. Okay? The, appear, the answer does appear to be that the original ending of Mark was offensive. It was unacceptable. Uh, particularly when you compared it with Matthew, Luke, and John. It just seemed kind of out of step. Uh, 
We have no appearance of the risen Jesus. The women are afraid and in terror. They're not doing what the angel asked them to do. And that really does seem to be at odds. And it did create tensions. And scribes love to step in wherever there's tension, right? And want to resolve that tension for us. Um, so to remedy this problem, the ancient manuscripts contain no less than four endings. We have the original, which is at verse 8. And then we have three attempts to fix Mark. And it's these are the ones that really get interesting. At least I find it interesting. I hope you do too. Uh, the fixes are known as the shorter ending, the longer ending, and the freer logion, which is from the freer gospels. Uh, a lot of times people who buy the manuscript get their name stuck to it, and that's what happens here. Now, your Bible will either have will have the long ending and may have the short ending too. And may have some little footnotes down there. It may put both here. No Bible I know of today has the freer logion in it. That's simply kind of floating out there. Uh, you got to go to Brooklyn to watch that, okay? Uh, shorter ending of Mark says this. All that had been commanded them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and perishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Mark says they were afraid they didn't tell anybody. Tag on. Oh, yes, they did. They told everybody. Now, this has no resurrection narratives or appearances, but doesn't it clean it up? You don't want to leave that dangling. It's just uh, uncomfortable. It says that the women did, in fact, do what the angels told them to do in spite of what Mark just told us. Uh, but and it, interestingly, there's sort of an in inference, just sort of hinted, that maybe Jesus did appear because it said Jesus himself sent out. We're not sure what that, what that means. Okay. Here's the longer ending. This is the one you're familiar with. This is the one in your Bible, and it is fascinating. Now, after he arose, early in the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. Now, what gospel have we just jumped into? John. Okay. She sent out and told those who'd uh, been with him while they were mourning and weeping. But when they heard that he was alive, and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. Have we heard that before? Okay. No, no surprises there. After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. Remind you of something? What gospel are we in? Gospel of Luke. And they went back and told the rest. They did not believe them. Now, we're going to create a problem here because in this longer ending, there's a little litany. Every time... He's risen, don't believe. Story, we don't believe. Now, is that going to create some more problems for you? Did the fact that the disciples don't ever believe anything? Okay. The freer Logion will try to fix that here in a little bit. Later, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were sitting at table, and he upbraided them for their lack of faith and their stubbornness because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole of creation. Now, what gospel are we in? Matthew. Okay. And Luke, to some degree. The one who believes and is baptized will be saved. The one who does not believe will be condemned. That's kind of new. These signs will accompany those who believe. Now, this is the famous passage that gets everybody in trouble. Do any of you have relatives in Appalachia? Got any snake handlers in the group? Okay. You, you've heard of those traditions, right? This is where they go back to. By using the name of, uh, by using my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. 
They will pick up snakes with their hands. I don't know what church this is, but I'm not joining. If they drink any deadly thing, they will not hurt them. You know. Um, and there are churches that, that still do this. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, set down the right hand of God. What does that sound familiar? Apostles Creed. OK. Uh, so the question is, where in the world did this come from? Uh, there's little new in here. There is some new that one section about uh, the snakes is new. Uh, but it appears to be a compilation. A little from John, a little from Luke, a little from Matthew. Bring it in and blend it together. As a matter of fact, you can almost kind of graph this, this out. Uh, for example, verses 9 through 11, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. If you read over with John, it's almost word for word. It's not exactly the same. Uh, Jesus appears to the disciples. Now we're in Luke 24, the Emmaus story. We go verses 14 through 16. Jesus commissions the disciples. Mostly Matthew, but a little bit of Luke. Going to skip those uh, snake verses for a second. Go down to the Ascension story. We've got Luke. Uh, summary statement, a short, shorter ending. A little color coding here. Now, here's where it gets interesting. We've got what? Demons, tongues, snakes, and poison. That's the church you want to be involved in, right? <laughs> I'm thinking not Methodist, okay? <coughs> I want to read you something. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe shall be condemned. These signs shall fall upon those who believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak in new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands upon the sick and who shall recover. And while Jesus was still speaking to his disciples, he saw him taken up to heaven, skip down to the, the same color below and set down the right hand of God. Now, does that sound like it came from Mark? Didn't. I just quoted you from the uh, book that's called The Acts of Pilate, <laughs> which is another early Christian document uh, that dates from probably the early 2nd century. And Mark, the section has been lifted out word for word almost from that passage. So what it looks like is that somebody, to fix Mark, took a little of John, narrative there a little of Luke a little of Matthew a little of the Acts of Pilate by the way by this time do we have a definite New Testament we haven't decided what books are in and out so you can these are all Christian traditions that are flowing around down there we have a summary statement again we put it together that's how Mark should have ended shouldn't it you know it affirms everything it affirms the various narratives and even affirms something that we had not seen before from the Acts of Pilate. That, that's the best guess we have on where that came from. Now, the Freer Gospels, which are not found in any Bible you've got. This is the third oldest copy of Mark found in Egypt in 1907. This is actually a uh, picture of two of the pages. Pretty darn good shape, isn't it? It's an astounding manuscript. It is called the Codex Washingtonius, also the Freer Gospels. Uh, only the two others are actually older. It's the third oldest one we have. Uh, it's the oldest manuscript that contains the longer ending. It's the first one we can go back to. But it also contains something very interesting. Between verses 14 and 15 of the longer ending, this gospel actually inserts another explanation. You interested? It, it, it's an interesting little story. It's called the Freer Logion. 
uh, it seeks to tie up a loose end, and it wasn't a loose end in Mark. It's a loose end in the longer ending. When you have a litany, every time somebody says, go do it, they say they didn't believe them. That creates a dynamic. Why didn't they believe? Why didn't the disciples believe? Well, this is an attempt to put an answer to that. Why did the women not, uh, disciples not believe the women? Well, it's the devil's fault. Okay, <laughs> there you have it, fear going. Yeah, they did not believe them, and then we have inserted, and the women excused themselves, and you're not going to listen to us anyway, saying, the age of lawlessness and un unbelief is under Satan, who does not allow the truth and power of God to prevail. Okay, the devil will not allow you guys to believe over the uh, unclean things of the spirits. Therefore, this is prayer to Jesus, reveal your righteousness now, thus they spoke to Christ. And Christ replied to them, which makes this an appearance story. But Jesus is responding to him. The terms of years of Satan's power have been fulfilled, but other terrible things draw near. Have any of you read the book of Revelation? Yeah. That kind of thinking, you know, that the, the time that Satan controls the present age is coming to an end, but there's tribulation that we're going to have to go through still. And for those who have sinned, I was handed over to death that they may return to the truth and sin no more. That they may inherit the spiritual and imperishable glory of righteousness that is in heaven. Then the, 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 the longer one continues, later he appeared to eleven themselves. So you create a problem. The stupid disciples, the disciples won't believe anybody. Why? The devil prevented them and they do that. So. Six weeks of looking at these stories. Where does it leave us? Well, this leaves us with the church's resurrection faith. The church accepted and canonized four gospels. By the way, that was a bit controversial. Uh, there were some people who said, now, if you've got four different gospels and they're not the same, does that create some issues for some people? Yes, it does. So we like to do it. One was called the Diatessaron, which was an attempt to do a harmony. It was the first harmony. And in the Eastern Church, particularly in Syria, that was a very popular one. It just sort of put the four Gospels into a blender, hit frap, poured it out, and said, this is, this is it. And the church said, no, we're not going to do that. Marcin had an approach. He said, okay, I like Luke. Forget John, forget Mark, forget Matthew. I like Luke. Don't like the God of the Old Testament, so let's take all the references to the Old Testament out of Luke, strip those out. We'll take Paul's letters and the Gospel of Luke. That's my Bible. And the church said no to that. Instead, we canonized four, knowing that they're different, knowing that they're distinct, knowing that there's some tensions in there, very diverse accounts. The church, again, rejected attempts to do away with that. Uh, it let the diversity of experience and witness stand. It's my best argument that there was a Methodist church in the first and second <laughs> century. So at the center of the faith, what stands there? The empty tomb tradition. That stands at the very center. And the affirmation that he is risen, universal across the deal. It further affirms that Jesus was in fact seen by many, but they didn't all understand it in the same way. Do you remember some of the stories going out of the way to, st to stress the physicality? Put your hands in the hole of my hands. Put your hands in my side. Eat bread, eat fish. Then there's some passages where Jesus appears inside a locked room. How did he do that? We don't know. More than one story, Jesus is, was with his disciples. They simply do not recognize him. 
Why is that? Uh, we've got Paul and others who understand that this may have been a visionary experience. We've got a wide variety of understanding there. Uh, that diversity of experiences, understandings, and narratives uh, stands. Experiences which transforms the disciples and the apostles and allows us as Christians to not be nailed down that we have to understand it a particular way. We may understand it in different ways because they did in the same way. And in turn, they will spread that faith to others. With that, we kind of bring the Easter story to a close. And for the summer, when we looked at the, the, the Jesus narrative last uh, spring, the one thing we did not have a chance to do was much teaching. So how about the Sermon on the Mount for the next 12 weeks? We'll begin there next week. I don't know where the